This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. Um, I think you're going to love this episode, um, although it may be a little controversial, but I did an episode a while back about COVID with Dr. Jim Meehan and about maybe some of the misinformation that's out there about masks and about the vaccine. And we're going to go further uh, in that today with a a couple of researchers here. Um, I have two PhDs with me that started to question things, started um, looking at the, the data that was out there, and I'll let them talk about the conclusions that they're coming to. So we're just going to take a deep dive today uh, in this pandemic, just about all the information that's going on out there about about masks, about the death rates, about the, the treatment, about the testing, all that stuff. So my guests are Dr. Eric Snyder, PhD. He is a researcher and administrator, a former college professor. And I also have Dr. Amy Serrato. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, also PhD. Uh, she's a professional uh, civil engineer and a research professor. Um, and then I'm also joined by my lovely wife, Dr. Lydia Dennis, and she has been on the front lines treating COVID um, as I have myself as well uh, for, gosh, coming up on two years now. And she has been very uh, just outspoken on a lot of the things that have gone on. And she has uh, spoken down at the Capitol and, and several other places um, about a lot of this uh, misinformation and things. So we got, uh, there's four of us today. So anyways, uh, everyone, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay. So uh, Dr. Eric and Dr. Amy, i um, going to just kind of start it off with you guys, if you will take us back to how all this started. So you guys have started writing some some articles, which which we'll get to, but take us back to why you started doing that, why you started questioning things, and then just how all this got started. Eric, you want me to start? Yeah, go for it. So back in February, when I was traveling for work, I started hearing about this COVID from other colleagues, and I I started looking into it, and and then in March when I came back home, everything shut down, and my biomedical colleagues were contacting me and my professional group was saying, you know, we're putting out these papers on how to treat COVID. We have existing drugs to do this, but our websites are getting pulled down. Our papers are getting retracted and we're losing our funding. And, And I started thinking, wow, this is weird because I didn't think from a, just a standpoint of coronavirus, I wasn't thinking that this was all that major of a disease. I thought it was easily treatable. And so I was reading all these papers like, well, that's a really good idea. Why, why isn't that getting out to the public? And then, you know, I got busy with homeschooling three children during the lockdown and trying to do my job. 
But then we got COVID, my family got COVID in October of 2020, very mild symptoms. Uh, but I went to the urgent care just because I, I was hearing that people were getting worse. And so I went there and I said, well, is there anything you can prescribe to me? And the physician's assistant said, well, we're not allowed to prescribe you anything. And I, I thought, when else have you never been allowed to prescribe something to a patient? A physician can always make their own decision about what's best for the individual patient. And so then I kind of, I got a little scared and a little concerned and I started really diving into the data. And I started noticing that things were continually to be censored. It was very difficult to find information. Um, every time that I would think I would read a report and I'd say, wow, this is completely opposite of the narrative. And my husband told me that it, it, it looked like I was screaming at myself in the mirror. You know, I was going crazy, you know, like, what, am I just reading this wrong? And so I kept finding this data and finding this data. And finally, my husband talked to Dr. Snyder um, in August and said, you really need to, and I guess they had a conversation about things that were going on. And he said, my husband said, you need to talk to Amy. And we got together in August of this year and combined all of our data that we had found. And still to this day, we're almost dumbfounded that the data that we're reading is literally 180 degrees from what the narrative is. And so that's how I'm in it and why I'm in it. And because I want to provide people information so they can make informed decisions about their healthcare. And I don't think, I don't think the data is easily accessible to people. And that's a shame because you should be able to read both sides of the story before you make a decision. Okay. Uh, Eric, anything you want to add to that? Sure. I, I think uh, a similar trajectory, um, clearly in, in my current life, I'm in, I'm in the education world. So, you know, students are always a primary concern. Uh, and when you're given that responsibility, uh, you tend to take any safety concerns very seriously. And so, you know, for me, probably a little different time frame. Um, you know, that March of 2020, when everything was locked down, uh, I think I was probably pretty consistent with the rest of the public about that's a, appropriate uh, public policy. But as it started to play out a little bit more into August, and then especially into uh, December of 2020, uh, when Dr. Pierre Corey was testifying in front of Congress about therapeutics, and um, probably the line that I drew where I really started to get into it was January 7th when the CDC released information about the update to PCR testing and the threshold mm -hmm. cycles. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that uh, in conjunction with what was happening in Washington, D.C., that kind of slid under the radar, I thought this none of this is adding up. And so I really started to delve into it uh, pretty deep and, and figure out for myself uh, only because, you know, I wanted to be able to protect um, individuals that I love and care about, you know, what, what is the best process moving forward? And so um, it was kind of ideal getting with Dr. Serrato because she was researching some of the topics that I, I, it's simply a time and scale issue. It's just so large. And so I had some of it and she had some of it. So it was a perfect storm to throw those two things together and, and bounce ideas off of each other. And I think uh, when your competencies are there, it's a lot easier to feel trustworthy about the individual that is reading what you're seeing and mm -hmm. looking at the same numbers and confirming those numbers. Um, mm -hmm. So you don't think you're losing your mind. Yep. Yep. Okay. Exactly. So, so you guys got together and then you decided to publish 
a, a lot of these findings. And so you didn't want to be censored. And so you have been posting this on igniteliberty.net. We'll talk later in the show about how people can find that. And you're calling it uh, Pineapples on Mars. Uh, where where did that name come from? So when we were starting to share data, so I had everything in a Word document and Eric had everything in a Word document on masks and PCR. And so we decided to make a Google document and we kept sending things back and forth, but our emails weren't going through. And so finally one night about 10 o'clock, I said, forget this, just pineapples on Mars. And I sent it to him and he got it. And so that was just a joke. And we didn't really start out to publish it. We always said we should write a book about this. We should write a book about this, but it started as an email campaign to politicians and leaders and people that were making decisions that we didn't necessarily agree with. We don't wanted to get them the actual data. And so, but then our document got too big. Our document got to be 70 pages and it was just so much data. So we started to break it up into the chapters. And then I don't even know how the, the Ignite Liberty started, but we got approached to put it on the website and it was the perfect way to get information out quickly. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, uh, let's get into that. And so y'all have multiple uh, parts to this or, or chapters. And so we'll just start at the beginning where you start going through the death rates and COVID-19 fatality rates. And so talk about some of the findings with that. Sure. So I think in, um, you know, it, as just kind of data points to start making educated decision or drawing inferences, uh, one of the things that we found a bit peculiar was the fact that, you know, in from 2019 to 2020, the world death rate at, at versus population, uh, that percentage didn't change. And, and one would just think logically that in a pandemic scenario that you would see uh, some variance in that percentage mm -hmm. uh, worldwide. And so that was a little bit interesting as kind of a point to look at. And then, you know, you start breaking it down um, and looking at the infection fatality rates uh, and the calculation for that, which is your deaths over um, your case infections. And you know, the numbers uh, weren't really adding up as far as the severity of the disease. And, and so I don't want to, I don't want to not uh, say that, you know, individuals haven't been affected by this, but even your New York Times articles and some others had come out about um, that infection fatality rate and, and it's uh, low, a low rate that also matters based off of age stratification. And I think that's a really key point. And so as we're making public policy, um, the idea of isolating and quarantine, quarantining individuals across all age groups, uh, the mm -hmm. idea of uh, making decisions for vaccination and, and not vaccination based off of those age groups should be in strong consideration by those in leadership positions and those dictating public policy. And we simply weren't seeing that. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we go pretty in depth in, in the chapter about some of the data on that. But, you know, for example, I think there was, you know, 680 deaths uh, of, of children that was confirmed through November 5th uh, that were ages 0 through 18. And you have to break that number down. Uh, and I think that's where Dr. Serrato and I certainly have the competency to look at uh, the data itself. You know, those 680 were died with COVID in quotations uh, with. And, and when you look at it further, basically all of those individuals, 95% uh, of them actually, according to the CDC, had four or more comorbidities listed on their death certificates. 
And that's a very important point because what that actually means to uh, for public policy, and I think it would be a different narrative in a risk analysis for the population is, you know, you've had 43 children die of COVID-19 in, in that age group um, over that period of time. And if that's the case, um, what justifies doing a mass vaccination campaign for that age of individuals when we know now that the adverse effects are growing exponentially mm -hmm. and that there were limited safety protocols put in place and kind of analyzing it. So, you know, if you look at the age stratification among 80 plus, it's a little different story. Um, but we also know now a lot more about therapeutics and uh, the nuances and complexities of it all tie together but it's difficult to um, it's difficult in a short elevator speech to convince people of the narrative that, you know, we are discussing because it's very it's actually quite complex in the strategy that has been used to influence. And I, I don't know, lack of better words, program individuals into thinking that it's far worse than it really is. Mm -hmm. So y'all mentioned that, you know, the number one cause of death remains heart disease. Uh, as it's been for a while. And you have down that, just to talk about some statistics here, adults have a 99.7% survivability rate from COVID. Children have a 99.999% survivability rate uh, from COVID. So Amy, anything you want to add to, to any of that? I think the the main problem with why we're still in this two years after it started is from fear. So there was so much fear instilled by these numbers that Eric was talking about. So, you know, all you saw on your screens were death tickers and everything was all about COVID. And so people just got this mindset that there's only one way out of this. There's only one way out of this. And they, they weren't thinking, they, they lost their critical thinking ability to, to, to understand that the healthier you are, um, the more active you are, the better sleep you get, the better you eat, uh, the healthier you are, the, the better you're going to fare if, well, not if, when you get COVID, everyone is probably going to get COVID at some point. Um, and so that's why there's this faction of the population that is still so fearful of this. And we haven't been able to move the needle at all, even with such a large percentage now of our population vaccinated and people are still unwilling, I think, to, to look at the other side and the other data. Can I ask a question? Sure. I've been following the data that's just reported like normal people would look at at the health department. That would be numbers that even basically educated people could look at. But I noticed a stark change, uh, especially after the election in January, how data was reported and that we have cumulative data, but not not weekly data, not daily data, not data that makes a difference between for the individual to make decisions about, you know, school this week or go to church this week or whatever. Can you just comment about how you've seen data sets even by the CDC? I mean, I've noticed that the CDC's reporting of public data has shifted radically to make it more difficult for the average person or even a half educated person to make heads or tails of it because it seems conflated to me to fit the narrative. Can you just comment on that? Sure. I mean, that's absolutely true. I would say that it's very difficult in the USA to even determine if a data set has been falsified or if it's even true. And so we've looked to other countries, which I think is a travesty. 
that we have to look to other countries, but even other countries about every three or four months, they'll change the way they report their data. So instead yep. of doing a four week data dump, they'll do a three week and overlap one of the weeks, or mm -hmm. they'll have a table that tells you the vaccinated rate versus the unvaccinated rate of mm -hmm. infections and deaths, then they'll remove that table. Yeah. And so it's very difficult. And it's, and Eric and I talk about this all the time. I mean, they are making it difficult from someone who has a lot of OCD about data. And when you start an experiment, you can't change the definition in the right. experiment. You can't change how you report it. When we try to do uh, over time data mm -hmm. points, we have to have these lines in our graphs that say data change. Yeah. So we have these would have been great data from the beginning of the of time, but we have all these breaks in where they change the definitions of the data. And so even for people that are really adept at statistics, we sometimes have to abandon a data set because we have we can't make any inference based on the blip in the middle where they change the data. And so I, that is definitely on purpose. Um, and I don't know what we can do to fix it because I think we're doing our health professionals a huge disservice by not providing them just raw, true data and let them analyze right. it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not losing my mind. Sure, to give you to give you an example that would be simple, you know, for anyone in the audience to understand, you know, uh, case in point, you shifted from zero to 18 as a category to zero to 17. Yeah. Well, how do you tease out the 18 year olds from the data set? And mm -hmm. and from those in the stats world, it's difficult if it's an Excel file and you can try to data mine and pull that out. It's just not accurate then there, there's a bias that's built in and so for you know those that are true to the science and and doing accurate experimenting and running accurate data sets it's just not appropriate to do those things and you know that the individuals that are in these positions running them they know that they've been mm -hmm. trained on what's appropriate methodology and so that's also what's a little bit more concerning now where i would also say there's a gap is the medical professionals understanding of the medicine and the treatments and the testing that we utilize to make public policy decisions isn't often communicated with the data scientists so that they understand the complexities there. So sometimes for them, they're just getting a large data set and they're like, okay, yeah, we'll just throw that out without understanding what that data set really is. Right. And that's a key point that we'll probably get into a little later, you know, with the testing protocols and what we've done. So. Okay. Yeah, and Eric brings up a good point with those age shifting, shifting those brackets, because when you go to compare just the cases and the deaths and then the comorbidities, they yeah. use three different age brackets for each one of those reporting systems. So the cases are one <clears throat> age group then the comorbidities are another age group and then the deaths are another age group. So you're going, I, you know, how do you even compare You can't. Th those and you, and you can't do that. And so that's been frustrating. Wow. Yeah. So just to give the listeners an idea, and, and y'all mentioned this in your article, but uh, the death rate 2018, 0.76%. 2019, 0.76%. 2020, 0.76%. 2021 obviously is not done yet, but uh, you mentioned it's on the course to actually decrease a little. So uh, to your point, if we're in a pandemic, why is the death rate not going down? Do we have an answer for that? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think, you know, that's a that's including all variables on Earth. And so, you know, of how deaths are occurring. 
Um, but what I would say is probably more important to look at then is, you know, just in the United States, our new confirmed COVID-19 deaths per million people, uh, we're actually on pace this year to have far worse of a year than 2020. Mm -hmm. And so the question then becomes, we've now had a mass vaccination campaign across the United States, which should show a decreasing, uh, a decrease in deaths among our population, but instead we're gearing up to have the highest death rate ever. Um, and that is more problematic when we're just looking at COVID-19. And so it'll be interesting to see. We're also entering the winter months, which tend to have seasonal viruses and, and flus that occur. And so you could see an uptick big enough to push that death percentage uh, in the world above that 0.76. It, it'll be interesting to see. And what's also interesting is the excess death rate mm -hmm. from 2021 is way higher than it was for the previous five year average. And I think Vermont's, I have the plot, Vermont is up 95% excess wow. death rate and they are 99% vaccinated. vaccinated. Mm. And so that's a little concerning because they're still four to six weeks away from their peak. Yeah. And yet their death rate. So these people, excess death rate doesn't mean they're dying from COVID. They're dying from right. whatever. Uh, and that's that's also concerning. And I don't think health professionals are really looking at that and seeing a safety profile issue, you know, with with what's going on. Or, or at least they might be seeing it, but they're not correlating it with right. a mass vaccination effort, which is unfortunate. Okay. Well, let's get into the next chapter, uh, which is death, coding, inflation, and upcharges. So uh, what's that all about? Yes. Yeah, so um, for, uh, for public policy standpoint, I think it's important that Americans understand, you know, what happens uh, when individuals go to the hospital, what was in the CARES Act as a document and how um, subsidies are essentially provided for uh, treatment of COVID in, in a pandemic scenario. And I, I think we should probably be clear that you know, we want our nurses and doctors and hospital personnel to have all the support they would need and funding that they would need. But um, one of the concerns I think that starts to exist is the idea, you know, with the coding itself. And so in the United States, we use a U07.1 code uh, as the death cert certificate code that would be put on there by a coroner, coroner or the medical doctor that's um, assessing the individual. The, the issue is, is linguistic. And so within the language of that death coding, um, one would assume that you would want to show evidence or concrete proof that COVID-19 was actually the cause of death. And so within it, um, what, what's actually allowed, uh, according to, you know, the CDC and, and the language within the, the law is that probable or presumed COVID-19 is allowed to be put on there. And what that allows what that actually provides to hospitals and, and caretakers is a 20% upcharge uh, for their time um, at that hospital, where in the world, um, there's a U07.2. So the World Health Organization has that internationally. And they separate out that variable into those two attributes, U07.1, U07.2. And the importance of that is essentially that if you do not have a conclusive test available, you must label it as the U07.2 to justify that COVID-19. Uh, it may have been that, but you don't really know. Whereas in the United States, they're all lumped into one. 
And so individuals can just say, well, we think it was COVID-19 that killed this individual because they had a positive PCR test. But even with that test there, you know, or not having the test, they can put that on the death certificate, mm -hmm. which gives a lot of money. And when you start looking at mm -hmm. Medicare and Medicaid in the United States, I think it accounts for about 59% of the population. And that's a lot of individuals. And if we know the age stratification affects the older individuals, then we know that they tend to be the ones that are hospitalized, which means that those upcharges are provided. There was also a FEMA, uh, through FEMA, there was also another perk that was given uh, where, uh, again, $9,000 is given to families if that COVID-19 is used on the death certificate for burial up to $35,500 to cover funeral costs, et cetera. And again, I support that notion, but on the premise that you accurately knew it was COVID-19 mm -hmm. that killed the individual. And so, you know, one might say like, why does that even matter? Well, if your death, if your deaths are inflated for the particular virus, clearly that is a public policy concern. And when individuals are thinking about leaving their home, there's a risk factor associated with that. And so as that death toll upticks on the television screen, individuals become more concerned. And then they make decisions for their family and loved ones based off of that. And so I think it's important to point out that it is tied to funding. We also know that it's tied to funding in public schooling through the CARES Act. And so you know, if public schools aren't complying with CDC recommendations, they can actually get funding removed that has been tied to it, uh, which I think is a lot of the reason why there are vaccination clinics being set up at public schools and elementary schools throughout the state. And my question is simply, you know, do we really know and how accurate is the data that we're actually looking at uh, from these individuals? Amy, you want to add anything to that? Well, I think that covered it. I think, again, we're obfuscating the data we are potentially inflating one number to get a certain response from the public and that's not being truthful. I, I would also say, you know, they did a soft audit. So there is actually data to support what we're justifying and saying um, in Santa Clara, California and Alameda counties, they did a soft audit of their death certificates and they found 25% of them um, were not due to COVID but they were listed as COVID. And so there were car accidents um, literally a death by a gunshot was in it. And so that individual's listed as that. There's there's an upcharge associated with it. And then, you know, additional money's provided. But if there's a 25% reduction nationwide, that is so substantial when you're looking at that infection fatality rate calculation. Um, and the other point that I would make is they also uh, looked at the seroprevalence testing in those in counties too, and looking at prior infection. Because you're talking again, the infection fatality rate is deaths over the infections. And when they looked in a county where they tested everybody for uh, seroprevalence or did blood tests, look at ant antigens, they found that um, I think 50,000 of the people in, the, in that county were actually already infected. <laughs> and so when you add that to the denominator yeah. over the deaths, it reduces mm -hmm. your death and your infection fatality rate. And uh, I know as early as May of 2021, I think there was data that came out, they thought 40% of school children in the United States had already been infected with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. right. um, and now, you know, we're in December, believe it or not, of 2021. So if it was 40% in May, 
uh, what is it now? It, you know, maybe it's 80%, maybe it's 70, but at that point, and Amy can go way into detail, you know, you're talking about natural immunity already existing mm -hmm. and what is your public policy and what is the threshold for herd immunity and how do we move on from that? So, yeah, I wanted, I think it goes into the next uh, section, but y'all, this is a quote from that particular chapter that you wrote. It said, how can the AMA accurately state that they're not over-reporting COVID-19 cases when we know with 100% certainty that the PCR tests, which were approved to be included in the death certificate files, are not diagnostic tests? And I think that testing is the linchpin of the whole thing because it's been a bastardized test from the beginning. And it is, it is the linchpin on which all these decisions are being made. So I can't wait to talk about this because, I mean, it is. It's, it's a test that, you know, clinically, we don't use PCR to diagnose anything. We use it in the office um, to help support a diagnosis if there are clinical signs and symptoms present. But in and of itself, it's fraught with all kind of error, and it's not a diagnostic test. It's a supportive piece of information is all it was ever meant to be. So y'all just take that away. Uh, so I guess PCR is really my my passion. You know, again, going into this, I knew very little about the test. What what I always like to do is look historically. And I think where I really started to open my eyes, there was a 2007 New York Times article that was written. Uh, and the title was Faith in Quick Test Leads to an Epidemic That Wasn't. And I'm like, well, that probably warrants me uh, reading. <laughs> and ironically, there was a whooping cough outbreak that occurred at a Dartmouth hospital. And there was a, a, a physician there that they thought had whooping cough. And clearly that's pretty contagious. Uh, and so it, it's actually quite tragic, but uh, basically they tested a thousand of the workers at that hospital, nurses, doctors, uh, staff members, et cetera. And 142 of them came back with positives. And so, you know, that really put that hospital in a unique situation where they had to pull workers from other hospitals around the area mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that patients could continue to get services. And then about eight weeks later, after some seroprevalence testing and other testing was done, they found mm -hmm. out that um, mm -hmm. not one or two or 12, actually zero people were infected. Mm -hmm. And that really piqued my interest. I'm like, wait. And there was actually a physician in the article, and I don't know the direct quote because I don't have it in front of me, but basically they said that like, this is bad. And mm -hmm. you know, this, a a, the lesson should be learned in using these tests, but unfortunately I don't think it'll be the last time. And I'm thinking, well, here we are again <laughs> using, using these tests. And so it, it's very nuanced again. And, and I think for yourselves being in the medical field, uh, it might be easy to understand, but for those in the general public, you know, there is a complexity piece to it. Uh, but essentially, the, the test was invented by Dr. Kerry Mullis. He won the Nobel Prize for it. It's actually, actually a really brilliant tool. Mm -hmm. uh, but what it's looking at is it can detect small fragments of, of DNA within your body. And what one has to understand is that over time, we are exposed to so many things mm -hmm. that can be present within the body. But the test itself needs to be primed to actually search for those things. And so um, SARS-CoV-2 was specifically what the PCR test was primed for. And um, what happens through that is basically uh, you heat up the sample. So if people do a nasal geal swab, um, they, they then heat up the sample that splits your DNA. I, I think I explained it as a ladder, but you then mm -hmm. add a primer that you're, you're looking for. 
and you add the polymerase then which mm -hmm. builds out the remainder of that ladder and then you cycle it through mm -hmm. and where it became really concerning for me um, was the cycle threshold standards mm -hmm. and what we were looking for so I, I think that's the important piece of using this as an analytical tool not a diagnostic and so um, we know for a fact um, number one that many states in the united states were running this above 40 cycle thresholds mm -hmm up until that January 7th date of 2021, but they then reduced it. And we actually know from October 20th of 2021 that the state of Oklahoma continues to run it at 37 cycle thresholds. And we have on record, basically everybody that you would provide some competency to, Dr. Buston, who's uh, in Texas, um, Dr. Mullis himself, when you run the test at anything above a 35, there's a tremendous concern that it would be replicant competent. Mm -hmm. And we saw that playing out with professional athletes. Uh, one of the examples I, I talk about is, I mean, clearly we're in Oklahoma, which is football country, but Cristiano Ronaldo, a soccer player, tested positive three times for COVID-19 and wasn't able to play in one of the most premier soccer matches. Because of that, he had zero symptoms, mm -hmm. uh, no, no issues, and was pretty frustrated and used some choice words about the test. Yeah. Um, which that went viral and then he, you know, retracted on those, I think, with some pressures from whoever. Uh, but uh, we have, you know, Dr. Fauci on record as admitting that above the 35 isn't replicant competent and, and there's countless others that know. So it, it became really problematic as, as a test. Amy, you want to add anything? The diagnostic manuals too, even stated explicitly. Everyone should know that the PCR <clears throat> test was recalled back in June, but it it's not recalled until December 31st of this year. And still we have not heard what tests will replace this PCR test. So right now we are still using that PCR test, even though the FDA recalled it. So there was a, there was a pretty, we have a graph that we did using John Hopkins data, but if you look at the cycle threshold drop on January 7th of 2021, which correlates with the rollout of the mass vaccination mm -hmm. campaigns, you had a pretty drastic drop immediately after uh, because that cycle threshold was being run at a lower level, yep. which then could be part of the course of the narrative that the vaccinations are working, mm -hmm. however. Right. And also there was on the CDC website for a short while, a split between vaccinated and unvaccinated. So there was language on there that got, it was only up there for five or six days. We have screenshots of the actual website that they were running the cycle thresholds differently for vaccinated uh -huh. versus unvaccinated. So 28 for vaccinated to lower yeah. the cases and 35 for unvaccinated to potentially raise the number of positive cases. And um, I'm not comfortable with treating unvaccinated and vaccinated people differently. I don't think that's right. And, uh, but we, we see that more and more. And so. Well, that's going on in Oklahoma hospitals to this day as they test staff as part of the discriminatory policies that are going on in our hospitals. And it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it absolutely, it, and as, as researchers, I don't know how in a year's, right, right now, your data sets are screwed up now too, because you can't even compare those cycles, those cycle levels from last year to come up with clear data about what you have. And um, now, now we got people that have uh, free testing. I heard that that's out at Bricktown now that you can go get free COVID PCR tests. And people recognize that because of the narrative as the gold standard. 
Wow. I, I refer to wow. it as a copper gilded alloy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and my reasoning for that is, as you well know, it is an analytical tool. Yes. But it should always be followed by seeing a physician or medical expert yes. to justify. And our public policy didn't warrant that. If you mm-hmm. tested positive with a PCR, they sent you home to quarantine for 10 days. And the right. question then was, how many doctors follow up with those individuals uh, to talk to them about symptoms, et cetera, and yeah. how many nurse practitioners, whoever that is, but you know, it would make sense to check in on it uh, and see. One of the things I'd also say, you know, there was a court case in Spain that, that actually looked at this pretty extensively. And that was one of the rationales. There was uh, some individuals from Germany visiting on vacation and they tested positive with their PCR, so they weren't permitted to go home. And within the actual ruling, it states about the lack of reliability and validity of the tests uh, when run at that cycle threshold, uh, which, you know, is really important to note. Right. Speaking of Italy, will you comment on, you know, Italy recently had a retraction of their death rate. Can you talk about how that may have how that went down, why that went down, what numbers that they looked at to adjust their death rate a year after? So I like to be transparent. I have not read that yet. I haven't read that either. Um, so I, I think that's something I need to investigate. Yeah. Oh, so yep. did the number of death rates drop? Oh yeah, substantially. So sure. I just wondered what what they looked at. What did so they I take would imagine out? much like that the Santa Clara County and others, um, what they probably went back and looked at is how was it coded and what was the actual cause. And so if you, again, if car accidents are, you know, what can happen, essentially anytime an individual in the state goes into a hospital setting, they're given a test, mm-hmm. regardless if they're going in for a knee surgery for a delivery of a child um, or they're going in for open heart surgery or they have COVID. I mean, they're all tested right. when they enter through the door. This is one of the problems that we've discussed with some of the data analysts um, in the conversations with natural immunity. But so let's say they got in a car accident, they're given a test, it pops positive, but they die, you know, when they get to the hospital because of trauma, blunt force trauma. They're still actually put, they're able to put on the death certificate COVID-19 because they tested positive. And so I would imagine that they audited those death certificates and they're giving a little better of a narrative to the Italian population which is something I think needs to happen nationwide. The problem is, you know, for some of those, how do you go back right. and, and know, um, right. you know, there will be some that are clear as day, a gunshot wound to the head uh, probably right. wasn't COVID. <laughs> right. Well, uh, speak also to, um, you know, if you look at the, and this, this drives me nuts. I just think, God, are we that incompetent in the state of Oklahoma that we can't even get our own death certificates straight? If you look at the numbers just reported on the Oklahoma Health Department's uh, COVID numbers, the number almost doubles every time the CDC corrects the number of COVID deaths. That's been going on for almost a year now that the CDC came in and almost a doubling every time that those numbers are reported. Can you speak to that at all? Amy, you want to speak on when that? They're, when they're changing the numbers? Yeah. And so if you look at the number of COVID deaths reported to the at the Oklahoma Health Department from their death statistics, and then you see the CDC's death statistics from COVID that are nationally reported, they're completely different numbers. I mean, they're almost doubled for the CDC's recorded numbers for our state. I fill out death certificates. There, it's not that difficult. 
And I can't believe that there would be that much gross incompetency at the state level that they would bury, lose, or hide half of the COVID death numbers. And then the federal government comes in, aha, here's all the rest of the people that died of COVID. I, I'm not sure how that, how that number gets changed like that. And it's reported on the news. I mean, it will be an Oklahoma Health Department statistic death number and then CDC Oklahoma COVID death number. They're completely different numbers. Yeah, I've noticed that on the Johns Hopkins website where we get our data or ourworlddata.com uh, is different from the Oklahoma. Now, I don't know how, who reports the data from Oklahoma to the national. I don't know who reports that. I mean, our death certificates go through the coroner's office. That's where we report ours to. That is a state set up website that you go to and log in and you fill out the death certificate and you right. put in all supporting diagnoses. It has nothing to do with the health department. I mean, I don't know if the coroner shares that information with the health department for reporting purposes to the public, but my gosh, I mean, is there that much incompetency in our state? And I'm, I'm imagining other states are experiencing the same thing, that by the time that data reaches a federal level, that the numbers have been manipulated again. And so I, I didn't know if you've looked into that and you have an answer for that, but that's been something that in the last year has captured my attention that I'm like, my gosh, I mean, how can we royally screw that up consistently? And I remember a news report about that, um, that the um, Oklahoma Department of Statistics was being challenged by the CDC on their reporting. Of course, that was in about January or February that those numbers started getting changed. Yeah, yeah. That, that math doesn't add up to me, especially having firsthand experience with the reporting system. It's a, it's a digitalized thing. I mean, nobody fills out a paper death certificate anymore. That doesn't happen. I don't know specifically about that case, but I do know, for example, that when you take screen captures of the adverse event uh, reporting place, the VAERS, that the number changes week to week. So mm -hmm. in other words, there might be 3,000 adverse events in the pediatric population, serious adverse effects. And the next week you go and capture, there's 1,800. Mm -hmm. And then the next week you go, there's 2,100. And then the next week you go, there's 1,300. They keep continually changing. And I'm not, we're not particularly sure how that happens or why that happens, but we should be able to look into maybe who's reporting to the national databases, the Johns Hopkins, which is always slightly higher yeah. than the Oklahoma department. Uh, numbers. The, the yeah. Oklahoma COVID numbers. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I'd, I'd say too, to that, specifically is in conversations with those individuals with the PCR test and breakthrough infections. Mm -hmm. So if uh, myself, if I, if I was tested in, let's say December of 2020 uh, and I tested positive, that's registered through a system. Uh, at that point, the Oklahoma health department has access to it. And then I went in November, I had some symptoms and I went and got tested again and I tested positive. Now I'm classified as a, my, my natural immunity is not working, right? It's a breakthrough mm -hmm. infection where natural immunity hasn't worked. The problem with that is, as we've explained, the cycle threshold of the test may be at 37. If that's the case, it should be classified as a false positive off the get-go. We don't really know if I actually had COVID, if mm -hmm. I was quote unquote asymptomatic, which I struggle with that. I don't, I, right. I would love for someone in the medical field to explain to me how you could scientifically prove asymptomatic infection, you know, with that being the case, 
we then put out to the public that natural immunity and breakthrough infections exist at this percentage, which is problematic because is that actually true? Right. Is your data pooled also because we have to report we have a we have a lateral flow rapid uh, an antigen test in our office that has to be reported to the health department. Is that data teased out that it's PCR data versus this rapid data? It's just no. all lumped together because mm -hmm. those data sets are very different. Lateral flow testing even compared to SOFIA testing, which is thought to be more accurate, none of those tests, you have to have a very high pre-test uh, probability that the test is positive for it to even have any value to you clinically. So asymptomatic testing in my mind is completely asinine because it doesn't help me to make a, a clinical decision about anything. Mm -hmm. And um, and even, even when you have symptoms, those tests are only about 60% true positive oh. anyway. So, I mean, it's not even as good as our rapid flu and strep test yet. And yet we still continue to use those. And that is, that is polluting your data pool, I think, with a lot of false, false negatives and net negatives that you, nobody will ever be able to tease out later just because the value of the test is very poor. And they're not, when you're doing a drive-through clinic for asymptomatic people or like the school systems are doing now, probably as part of the CARES Act where you're asymptomatically screening a pool of people, mm -hmm. what does that mean? I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me as a clinician. It means absolutely nothing to me. And mm -hmm. you're going to put people on, like you mentioned, you put people on quarantine who end up never having disease. They never can spread disease because they never had disease. And that's why I think testing is such an important thing for, it's a complex thing even for scientists and clinicians to understand but it is not it is not a confirmatory test it is not a good test to begin with if you have no clinical symptoms i really and truly it is very poor information to start with and then for us to start making decisions about shutting down schools or giving money to this or counting these as deaths or whatever the information all the way around to me is about meaningless without any clinical relevance if you don't if you don't know what the patient looks like if you don't know what symptoms they have i i think they're all completely worthless in my opinion so yeah, and they're making decisions on natural immunity based yes. on the pcr test so if someone goes in they really had the flu not SARS. Yeah. they test positive now the whoever collects that information at the state has it now six months later they actually get yes COVID and test positive oh it's a reinfection rate. And, you know, while those numbers are relatively small, it's still used by the people in charge to say, oh, you can get COVID again. When we but, know that the reinfection rate from seroprevalence testing is minuscule. Yes. 7.5 times 10 to the minus 5%. Yes. And yet Oklahoma data shows about 0.4% simply because they're using a PCR to test for a re-positive test right. and that's inappropriate. And so right. they're using that test for a lots of inappropriate reasons, I think. Yes, yes. And I think we see, you know, I have to sign off every week. I mean, this is just putting it into practice. I sign off every week on a patient that has a standing order to get a PCR test for her employment every week. Well, what happens the day that she has positive and she has to quarantine for 10 days? 
and she never has disease. What if that happens three times during a sick season and she's in the healthcare profession and she's out of work for a total of 30 days of quarantine for absolutely nothing? Because the more you test, the more false positives you're going to get. And so, again, if it's not, if it's, if it's a test that's not clinically validated by some kind of a physical exam or some kind of symptomatology, I, I find that doing these screening tests are about worthless. And the public has been hoodooed by our politicians, especially early on, that we need more testing, more testing, more testing, more testing. And to this day, you have people who are like, well, I was exposed. Do I need to go get tested? Absolutely not. Until you have symptoms, don't test for anything. What are we testing for? Absolutely nothing. It's just been hammered into their mind uh, through the narrative that more testing is the answer out of this. And what y'all are saying is it's just conflating false numbers anyway. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Okay. Okay. Well, let me, uh, so we actually jumped to chapter four about the testing. I'm going to jump back to chapter three, which is titled Frozen in Time and Masking the Science. Uh, kind of summarize that, if you will. Amy, you want to talk a little bit about that one? No, you, you got it. You're, this, is, this is your thing. I mean, <laughs> Eric had all the masking information because he's in charge of a school and had to know yeah. about it. Yeah. So, go ahead. Yeah, so I, again, I like to give a little bit of the historical piece to it. Um, I was talking to Dr. Serrato about this the other day, but um, Wilfred Kellogg in 1919, there was a publication by the California State Board of Health after going through the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, where basically, and, and I'll quote it, the unhygienic influence when extended to the entire workday of the individual, um, the, the mask efficacy, efficacy was non-existent. And, and so basically uh, what they found, they compared Boston, Buffalo, San Francisco, and Washington, and they looked at their death rates and the spread of infection. And they found um, that, you know, the masks they were wearing had no efficacy uh, mm -hmm. in, in actually carrying out or preventing uh, disease, et cetera. And partially that's because of the size of the particle of which we're discussing. And mm -hmm. so um, if you look at, you know, in comparison of a flu versus a COVID-19 particle, one is, uh, the flu is, I think, 0. 0.8 to 0. 0.12, and COVID-19, I think, is 0. 0.125, so mm -hmm. a little bit bigger in size, uh, but still able to basically get through any uh, cloth masks uh, and or in some, in a lot of instances, N95s, and, and mm -hmm. there's even graphs of, and places on earth that have put in place N95 mask mandates, and they didn't see a change in um, case infection rates that occurred in those areas. So uh, through the chapter, I think some of the important studies to look at is, you know, our own CDC did a, a meta-analysis uh, on uh, the pandemic uh, of the flu, basically looking at flu, uh, and they had 14 randomized control trials within that, which are really our best type of science that we would use to mm -hmm. explore a topic and they found that face masks had no effect as personal equipment or as source control. And so it's interesting that they published that study in May of 2020, which was, you know, great when after we had closed down. So they, they put this out. And then um, I think if you read the chapter, it's nice to read the timeline of the flip flops, but it's really unbelievable when you go back and look at it. Um, the most current data that we've really looked at is uh, the Brown University study that has about 12 million participants in it, uh, which was looking at school settings uh, and other other places, but they, they basically found that um, 
whether students and staff were wearing them versus staff only mandates, there, there wasn't a correlation between mandates and COVID-19 rates, even either adjusted or unadjusted in the analysis. And so uh, there was essentially no effect. And, and actually hand hygiene was more promising. You know, a basic hygiene, hand hygiene was, was effective. And where it really started to be concerning, I think this summer, you know, a lot of places went back to quote unquote normal uh, after May of last year and went through all of summer without masks, uh, didn't really have any cases increase exponentially, you know, in the United States, then we decided at the start of the school year again that, you know, we would put masks on all the children um, in most states, you know, I have a brother that lives in Florida and it's been a little different there. And I have another cousin that lives in New York and some mm -hmm. family in Pennsylvania and, it, and their children are still in masks uh, in public schools as a requirement. But where I really started to get interested in it too. And I found it interesting was when the European Center for Disease Prevention came out on September 8th of this year and actually advised against anyone 12 or younger wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were seeing negative effects of it, uh, which are certainly there. And they basically put that statement out. And through kind of the research that we have, um, Yanon Weiss, I think is, a, is an individual that people should look up, but he's done some great graphing of it and looking at different states that had mask mandates and business restrictions versus those that haven't. And then looking at different countries, i.e., you know, Germany versus Sweden with medical mask mandates and Sweden versus the United States versus the European Union and what we decided to do as public policy and how that impacted our case rates and death rates. And, you know, while I don't want, I don't really have a, a skin in the game as far as what we would do or not do, I just want to follow the science. It's pretty clear that it's not going to be a variable that's going to influence uh, or control COVID spread. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed Dr. Meehan uh, a couple of months ago and he really dove into the data about masks and, you know, he agreed with you that they're not helpful. You know, he added that in many cases they might even be harmful. And, you know, he talked about how these paper masks that we wear, you know, are meant to be disposable and wear one time and throw them away. But of course people keep reusing them and they, had done a test one time, I think it was on children of these paper masks, and they, they swabbed the inside of the masks and found uh, oh. several different strains of bacteria and, and fungus and, <laughs> and all these things that these kids are, are rebreathing, you know, on a, on a daily basis. And so, yeah, I think it's kind of gotten crazy. Amy, anything you want to add to, to that? I, I think that they don't work and they are, I can see it in my own kids and the population that they hang out with. It's just, it's not good from a social perspective yeah. Yeah. and a mental health perspective. And even when Dr. Snyder and I have to go talk to people that refuse to take their masks off, it's very awkward, at least for mm -hmm. me, because not only am I a little bit hard of hearing and I'm a lip reader, but I also an empath. So I read a lot of facial expressions and I can, I connect better with people when I can see their faces. And mm -hmm. it's just a makes very, makes working and collaborating exceptionally dif difficult when you are restrained by kind of a still face scenario. And so I, I'm not a big fan of masks yeah. and if they worked, okay, one thing, but they don't work. So why are we still, sure. why do we still have them? Right. For your listeners, I would encourage them to look up, you know, the still space face experiment that was done by Tronic at, at UMass in the seventies. And, and one of the concerns from that public health policy for our children who really are of little risk to this virus uh, as a whole is when you cover the individual's face, as Dr. Serrato was talking about, 
it actually has a huge impact on their development of yeah. relationships and trust. Yeah. And so I, I think sympathetically with these teachers and individuals as they do that, um, it will have psychosocial effects over time. And, and the other piece I would say is, you know, obesity in children we know has increased exponentially, which is a public health concern. Um, we have 12 to 17 year old girls, uh, I think a 50% increase in suicide rates. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was global prevalence of, you know, anxiety and depression increasing mm -hmm. exponentially since this mm -hmm. started uh, with 72 million more and 53 million more struggling with those two disorders, which that's in addition to what we already said was a sociological phenomenon that we're seeing in, in the public that mm -hmm. was overwhelming our psychologists and psychiatrists. And yep. so their lines are out the door. Yeah, um, there's a two year wait in Oklahoma right now yes. for child psychology. Oh my God. Two year, two year wait. Yes, ma'am. I'm not kidding. You can't get a child in for it, diagnosis. It's, <laughs> it's, it's devastating. And uh, there's very little conversation about that. But it probably well, is there is. It's what the there's a grant that just came through. This is a ray of hope, but it comes a year too late. I mean, now that we have strapped our mental health that was already strapped. Um, we just got an email in the last week about uh, a program to try to educate primary care physicians like pediatricians and, and family practice doctors to, in our office, be the psychologist and initiate care while we wait our, in our two-year line to get in to see a full-fledged professional to help these children with behavioral problems and whatever. I mean, that, that is the state of things right now in our state in Oklahoma, that we're trying to to stop gap what, what is a terrible epidemic of mental health. I mean, my goodness, you'd be better off trying to go to the ER and get admitted acutely to get psychiatric or psychological care right now. That that'd be the probably best thing to do. And for children, it's near impossible to get a diagnosis on a young child who's struggling because of behavioral issues, probably linked to a lot of the stuff that happened with the uh, lockdowns. We've seen that in our small practice already. I can't imagine what pediatrician offices and others that see large numbers of children, especially Medicaid children. I shudder to think what they have to deal with day in and day out, just to keep children into daycare for behavioral issues. Again, I, I would even say, too, it's so severe that and the fear that we've instilled, I've actually had clinical psychiatrists and psychologists tell me that children in the state of Oklahoma were so fearful of getting COVID that they've lied about their own age to get vaccinated prior to their age category mm -hmm. being permitted. And as I'm sure everybody would agree as parents that it, that's just so concerning. And what what I try to tell people is we shouldn't burden our children with the responsibility of adult issues. Yes. That much of what we're doing today is doing that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So it needs to stop and allow individuals to make those decisions elsewhere and keep them out of it. Right. Well, let's get into the last chapter that you have, and this is the part one, uh, which is your latest publication. Don't have part two yet, but it's Why Stop the Healing? Mass Psychosis, American Health and Suppressed successful treatment protocols for COVID-19. This is something Lady and I talk about all the time. We get very frustrated at because this is potentially um, not necessarily preventable, but it can be a disease that is very mild and treatable. I, and treatable. I harp on uh, vitamin D levels. I feel like everything comes for me. I, I just I harp a lot on vitamin D levels because uh, I have seen people with very high vitamin D levels just basically have 
minimal symptoms of COVID. And then that was confirmed when Lydia uh, showed me uh, a study, I think it was a meta-analysis of several studies just recently that showed people with a vitamin D level of greater than 60 uh, or 50 or 60 had a, a zero death rate, um, death rate from, from COVID. Um, so I've been saying for a year now that two biggest factors in COVID outcomes are metabolic health and vitamin D levels. Uh, and if somebody is metabolically healthy, they have healthy levels of vitamin D, they're going to do fine with this. And that's not even talking about the uh, protocols that we have for treatment, which is just additional type therapy. So very frustrating to us, but talk about you guys' findings in this. So we found the same things that you're talking about in our part two. Well, we mentioned vitamin D in part one. Part two, we do mention those studies where you, if people had a poor outcome with vitamin D levels less than 20, Mm-hmm. And they had a very good outcome. 85.5% of people with a vitamin D level 50 or higher had mild symptoms, mm-hmm. which in its, and we're not talking an N of 100, we're talking like N of tens of thousands of people. Wow. And what our concern from this therapeutics chapter, we, we started out with saying, you know, we have all these drugs to treat it. Mm-hmm. And, but, but everything is getting censored and mm-hmm. doctors that are trying to provide this information are getting threatened by their medical boards and licenses for even talking about in the beginning, I don't think this part was in part one, but when people were talking about vitamin D, those levels, they were getting letters from the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission saying cease and desist. You cannot say vitamin D levels will help with COVID. <laughs> but that, that's ludicrous because vitamin D levels help you with all of your mm-hmm. immune function. And, and the higher your vitamin D level to a certain point, you know, the, the healthier you are and the more able you're able to, to fight off these diseases. And so we found that there's a lot of different protocols that have been put out even as early as I think May of 2020, mm-hmm. and that p- doctors have been saving lives with these protocols. So ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, budesonide, uh, fluvoxamine, mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of other ones, even vitamin D and now melatonin mm-hmm. was used in a the gold standard, what do you call that? Randomized controlled mm-hmm. trial, yes. placebo controlled trial. And they yes. used melatonin and they gave their people along with the standard protocol, they gave their, their patients 10 milligrams of melatonin for 14 days. And there was a huge difference in outcome mm-hmm. in terms of depth and death, thrombosis and sepsis. And so what our goal was with these chapters on therapeutics was just to provide people, the information that they could print off and bring to their doctor and talk about these different therapies that they could possibly get healthy prior to having a sickness Mm -hmm. like vitamin D levels and zinc levels and vitamin C levels. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then also if they, or when they do get COVID, if they get, if they have symptoms um, that they could not be so fearful and make a critical decision about what they were going to, to use to treat it early. Mm-hmm. and stay out of the hospital because that's the most important part. You don't want to have to go to the hospital for that. And so this was one of my big pushes because like I said, I was told that the doctor wasn't allowed to prescribe me anything. And that's crazy to me because actually the, the words were, if your lips turn blue and you can't breathe, you need to go to the hospital. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> what other, and I'm healthy. I'm never sick. Well, what other disease does a doctor ever tell, tell you that you, it's hard to bring someone back when they're that far gone, right? When they're in the early part of a, a symptoms, you give them something to maybe help. Right. I mean, even the doctor could have said, well, let's up your vitamin D and your zinc and your vitamin C levels. 
Yeah. I mean, as simple as that, if there was no pharmaceutical to prescribe. And so I don't use Google, but if, if one of your listeners uses Google stop and get <laughs> a browser that doesn't censor what you're, right. what you're uh, looking for, because if you type in, you know, vitamin D for COVID or melatonin for COVID or ivermectin yeah. for COVID, Nothing. you're going to yeah. get a big block that says, this is not an approved drug for the Mm-hmm. Use for COVID. And so everything's being censored. And so our goal is to provide information about some, not all, because there's so many drugs and combinations that can be used for people to do their own research. And we hope that they take the time to go through all of the studies, because just for ivermectin, the one that was lied about so much in our in our field, and even in Oklahoma, they made up a story yep. that there was overdoses. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, Eric, how many studies are there on ivermectin that show a huge yeah, percentage. Yeah, I think right now they have 61 peer-reviewed studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, 31 randomized 31. controlled tra- yeah. trials with 49,000 people in them, yet the FDA yeah. won't approve it for use. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In outpatient. It's on their hospital protocol, but it's not for outpatient. I, so we, and when we gave a presentation the other day to some health professionals, they didn't even want to talk to us about therapeutics because they said, if the CDC doesn't say it's okay, we don't, we don't want to use it. And we said, awesome. well, if you're not wow. going to listen, the old, their, their one and only push was everyone should be vaccinated. Right. And I yeah. said, but, but people are getting COVID after being vaccinated. Thank so you. what are you going to do then? I don't, we don't want to talk about therapeutics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Eric, anything you want to add to that? Well, I, I think the important part of it is that families and individuals understand the importance of disconnecting a bit from what would be more of a mainstream narrative and starting to delve into the data and the research that's out there because you can find it. And, and I would also encourage people to understand how our governance system works with the emergency use authorization. Mm-hmm. Um, why then a pending therapeutic that may be more natural and inexpensive is sidelined uh, for another product that may not be as effective and very expensive. Uh, And I think we see that example play out with just something like remdesivir, uh, which basically had one peer reviewed study for through Gilead Pharmaceuticals and uh, was really problematic in some conflicts of interest about who the scientists were. Uh, It's very expensive in the the hospitals and it certainly causes renal failure uh, and Mm -hmm. some other substantial issues that seems to not be discussed uh, by individuals. And so my hope is that more and more physicians and doctors and nurses start to look at that with an open mind and trust what they're feeling about what those possible treatments are. So, you know, obviously we have physician friends who have told us that, you know, they know that the numbers are being manipulated, even in the hospital setting of those that are admitted with COVID um, that are vaccinated versus unvaccinated. There's a lot of craziness going on with everything we've been talking about with with the manipulation of, of data, with uh, the suppression of treatment. So I get asked all the time by patients, why? I, I'd like to, this could be a long conversation, but um, I'd, I'd like to ask each one of you your opinions on why this stuff is happening, because we're just, we're living in crazy times right now with everything that's going on. Why is this happening? It's a very long conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even gotten to the chapter on follow the money and all the patents from, you know, Two, uh, two decades ago and, and things, but I don't know, even, and, and just to add to the crazy, I mean, I think we'll probably have to do another podcast on 
you know, the vaccine safety and all that, but just how crazy it is, cardiac events that have been going up, your physician friends will probably tell you that, you know, the amount of cardiac events and kids and pediatrics and, mm-hmm. and, and adults have been going up all around. We know how crazy it is. They're, they're trying to spin it now. So why are heart attacks seemingly becoming more common in fit people? And then it says cannabis use disorder may be linked to growing number of heart attacks in younger <laughs> adults. And then depression worsened during pandemic, boosting heart disease risk, extra more. And then global warming attributed to high heart attacks. I'm not kidding. Uh, <laughs> cold weather and heart attack, reasons and prevention. Physical activity may increase heart attack risk, study suggests. Oh my God. And so there, it's like a spin. It, yes. Everything's a spin. They're trying to manipulate a light, us yes. into believing that what's happening isn't real. And, and, <clears throat> and the why they're doing this, I mean, I don't, I tend to look at the good in people and not see the evil, but I think that this was somewhat planned. And I think that it's about control and compliance and it was nothing to do with the science. It can't be about the science because mm-hmm. nothing makes sense. Uh, and I think it's about people who have a lot of money trying to make more money and trying to get people just to to follow. And people call it the great reset. And uh, maybe Eric can talk more about that. But it's uh, from a scientist perspective, it's very frustrating that it isn't about the science because we would have been out of this. 18 months ago, had this been about mm-hmm. the science, we could solve yes. this. We all know how to solve this. Yes. And yet here we are and we keep moving in the wrong direction. Right. Yeah. I, I would, it, it would be hours of conversation <laughs> yeah. what I, what I believe about all of this now, but um, I, I think the important part is that science piece. Clearly we do know now what works to treat this. You two are living proof that it is treatable. The fact that that narrative isn't being broadcasted far and wide to the general population of individuals by by all in the media is not only concerning, but actually somewhat scary. One example I would give individuals to look up is the the province of Uttar Pradesh uh, in India Mm -hmm. and their success in treating COVID-19 as a perfect case study in comparison to another province of Kerala. And so, you know, with 241 million people Mm -hmm. um, in April, they had a spike like the rest of the world. They then determined that they were going to um, not only sue the World Health Organization, but imprison some individuals. Um, At that point, somehow they came up with the perfect antidote to COVID uh, for a whopping $2. I think it was $2.65. They provided that to all of their population. And now... Uh, going into December, they have something like what was it, nine cases last week or something? Yeah, they had, wow. they have, they've had less than nine cases per day for the last sixty days. So they they have two hundred forty one million people, mm-hmm. and they have less than two hundred active cases at any one time. Wow! So it, it would be a wonderful stimulus package that I would certainly sign right? up for yeah. um, eight hundred forty six million dollars in the United States that we could treat it all and be done with it and then move mm-hmm. on to other issues that clearly need to be fixed. But yeah. um, I, I think as Amy stated, individuals certainly knew that this was coming. While that might be a smaller group of individuals that, that knew about the, the seriousness of it, they, they certainly are not going to budge from their narrative. Uh, so individuals and people must educate each other and come together regardless of masking, unmasking, vaccine, not vaccinated, uh, we have to find a way to bridge that gap 
to hold our leaders accountable for the decisions that they're making moving forward, which will in turn save many, many more lives and, you know, end all these other issues that we're talking about. So it's pretty intricately connected. I think Dr. Desmond in, in Germany describes it best of what we're struggling with now. Um, and that's the mass formation of, of you mm-hmm. know, mass psychosis theory. And I think he's accurate in that. It's almost as if individuals are hypnotized. And once you wake up and you see it, you're, you're awake. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no going back at that point. Uh, and you start to delve deeper and deeper and deeper. But uh, I think the important part of the theory that he discusses that is that the only way in order to help those that aren't seeing it is that you have to allow the dissenting views or dissenting voices to be heard. Mm-hmm. And what better way to do that than in the United States uh, where hopefully freedom of speech and those things continue to exist, where individuals are allowed to openly have a debate about these topics um, and, and are supported in that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's been one of the most disheartening parts for Dr. Serrato and myself. I don't want to speak for her, but the fact that our educational institutions and individuals haven't had independent boards or debates in, mm-hmm. in a public forum to, to bring in you know, those that are uh, most pro-mask and those that are most non-mask and those that promote the vaccine versus the non-vaccinated to allow them to have a conversation in a public Mm -hmm. forum to then educate the population because it seems clear that there's only been one narrative that's been allowed to be in the public. And if not, it's censored. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that was tremendously problematic. And I would say that even to Dr. Amura, who discovered um, ivermectin, you know, basically the bacteria mm-hmm. form in the wild, he made a YouTube video that was pulled uh, about it being a treatable mm-hmm. product. Yeah. COVID. And when a Nobel Prize winning doctor who discovered the medication is censored, that it cures people, that should have raised rad- red flags for everybody. Lydia, do you have anything to add to that? I guess um, the other thing that people want to know from me is not just why, but what do we do about it, you know? And that, just like you're finding, I mean, sometimes it falls on deaf ears when you go to high places or to people that um, you feel like would be influential. But I think the answer is to keep hammering at it. You know, I had a college professor tell me that you just got to keep hammering at it and you'll break through, you know, and I think as long as all of us who are awake and are doing our part uh, don't stop, I think eventually um, there's a huge there's a huge population of people who are in the know. They just don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And um, if we could ever give them feet and a voice, I I think we would get some major traction. And I think. One of our, what we're trying to do is provide you, the, the DO and the MDs, the, the data. You have a clinic, you're working with people all day. You don't have a lot of time to, to go find all this stuff. We can put it in one spot mm-hmm. and then right. you can take that and go talk to your, your other physician friends. Uh, that would, that's what we're, we, we hope because when we sit in a room, sometimes we get disparaged because we don't, we get yelled at. You don't have an MD. You don't have a DO. What do you know? And I said, well, we have a brain. And we have right. a scientific background and we can look at this data. I so, said, you know, what conflict of interest do we have? Right. We're not getting any money from the pharmaceuticals. We're not going to lose our licenses while we're here. We're, we're speaking for those who, you know, maybe are a little bit nervous about losing their license. And, and we're not, what, why would we be here other than to tell right. you the truth? Mm. But right. I think, yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot of people that do believe us when we go out and talk, but then there are some that really want that those letters next to the name of someone talking to them. So, anything that we can do to help the medical profession 
by providing the, the data and the studies um, in a synthesized or organized fashion to help push that, what we'd be happy to do because we all want this to end and we all want people to know the truth and be able to speak up and uh, everybody would would speak up in their own way. Right. And I think we would make a little bit more traction because we find when we go out, there's people that we didn't even think were on the side of truth that come up to us afterwards and say, I, I believe this for a while, but I just don't know what to say or who to say. Cause I always get yelled at when I, when mm-hmm. I bring it up. Yeah. And so that's, I don't know how we've come that far that we won't even listen to the other, other perspective, but I think yeah. people we- just don't want conflict, you know? Yeah. We've seen that as well. Other physicians that discover us and what we're doing and think the same way, but they've been, scared to, to come out and then they come to us and they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that I'm not crazy and that somebody else thinks this way. So, right. uh, well, what's next for you guys? So this is, uh, we went through a chapter five kind of part one. So obviously there's going to be a part two, uh, on the, the treatment and stuff. Uh, what are some topics going forward and, and where are you guys headed with this? Well, our chapter after therapeutics is the importance of natural immunity. Mm-hmm. talking about all that and and how uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of original antigenic sin where if you prime the body with a vaccine a leaky vaccine that doesn't really mm-hmm. work the body will always go back to how it was primed and so you'll mm-hmm. never achieve natural immunity even with many many infections and talking about the importance of that in terms of vaccinating children mm-hmm. uh, that the natural immunity is really the safer way to go and then after that we talk about vaccine safety and then our chapter after that is on variants and breakthrough cases and um, a little bit more about vaccine mediated evolution mm-hmm. and some ant- antibody or the ADE mm-hmm. antibody dependent antibody yeah. dependent enhancement. And then mm-hmm. what's next after that? The follow the money, follow the money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Follow the money. And that's going to be a long chapter. Yeah. Yeah, it will. Yeah. yeah. So what about with your careers since y'all don't kind of agree with the narrative where, you know, is that going to affect your careers? How, how is that going to change what you guys are doing going forward? Well, I think time will tell where, where this goes. One thing I will say is that in my entire life, my, my philosophy on life is one that, you know, I'm going to be open-minded and look at the information and make a decision that I think is in the best interest of the individuals of which I oversee. And even if people disagree with that, I can be respectful to them. My hope would be that they're respectful to me and that they understand um, and are willing to look at the the narrative and the whole of the work in its entirety. Uh, And if they do, I'm not really sure how they might come to a nuanced conclusion, but uh, I don't know if it would be a very different one. Uh, in the end, once you kind of see the totality of the work itself. So um, wherever that takes me, I don't know. And for me, I mean, the last few years, I've really noticed where I am an increased amount of censorship and just one-sided narrative. So I'm hoping, and I've never felt so compelled in my life to follow some, this is not even my area for the last 20 months. All I've been doing is reading medical uh, scientific data. I've never done that before. Right. But I can't stop because the truth is out there and it needs to go um, to people. I'm hoping that academic freedom stays strong, but if it doesn't, I'm sure there will be something 
We'll have this lighter lighter and serato podcast yeah our own podcast you know we're we're gonna put this in a physical book at some point and Mm, yeah i think you should yeah we we want to just for history so in 80 years someone can't find it digitally they can find a a hard copy and i just want the truth to come out and people to stop dying unnecessarily and for my kids not to have to live through this anymore and for us just to go back to being you know, how we were a healthier, maybe a healthier us. And maybe this is a big wake up call for all how unhealthy Americans really are. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so career wise, I don't know, it could open up. So we don't know we, some, some yeah. good, some good thing. I did. We kind of, we call the uh, group that we're talking about the expurgation squad, part of the topic of the book. I, I think yeah. that we agree that we like that, but it's been very disheartening in a sense to see the federal agencies, all these state boards of medicine, television media, social media, medical facilities, academia, um, in, a, in what seems to be a coordinated effort to censor individuals. I, I just don't fundamentally believe in that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so, you know, as I've told Amy from the beginning, if we were proven to be wrong about the narrative, I don't think either of us would ever have an issue of retracting a statement and mm-hmm. issuing a public, uh, whether that's an apology or, you know, a uh, rationale for what, what our point was, I, I never would shy away from that. And I think that's actually what takes good leadership. So that's been what's been a little disheartening, too, is being in the room with individuals that maybe don't want to hear an alternative side. And I think when you're in a leadership position, you don't get a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to hear all of it and then make a decision of what's best for, for individuals. But I will say through this whole thing, we found our people. We found so many like-minded individuals mm-hmm. that we would have never met, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, through this, because we're not, we're not in the same field. We're, so, and we're meeting some really interesting people that have pointed us in different directions. And I think that just makes you grow and the ability to learn and think and make decisions every day and change decisions. I mean, we've, we've read some papers and then gone back and read other papers and, you know, changed our minds on, on some things or found some problems in the data set that we had to go back and re-explain. So it's been, it's been a great learning experience and uh, I hope that we can, we can finish it. We need to finish it. And then hopefully, yeah, hopefully we're, um, we help in some way to, to stop this. Okay. So for those that want to read, what you're doing, read your posts. Uh, they can go to igniteliberty.net and then click on pineapples on Mars. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are there other ways to get a hold of this information or, or anything else you want to put out there that people can contact you guys? Well, the the chapters are all electronic on that igniteliberty.net and we put them electronically first because there's so many clickable links and some chapters i think the one you read where we have 54 scientific peer-reviewed articles on masking so Mm. it's not a quick read i mean it could be could take a week or two yeah yeah but uh and if they need to contact us they can contact us by email i'm sure okay all right probably give a thank you to uh brian armstrong at Liberty for being willing to put our work up there. He's been uh, very positive and encouraging about it. And so, okay, well, I'm going to put you on the spot here as we close, Uh, you know, this, this is a health and wellness podcast after all. So I always end my podcast by asking my guests to give us one health tip that can make us healthier today. And uh, since we have three guests, I guess uh, we get three answers. So uh, Amy, what would you say? I'd say get outside and get active every day. Amen. Great advice. Dr. Uh, Eric? Water is life. Hydrate. 
hydrate. <laughs> Very good. Lydia? Remain hydrated. Uh, mine for today would be get your vitamin D level up. Know what your number is and get it up to greater than 50. Very good. Okay. Well, uh, that went a little long, um, but uh, a lot of good information. And I think uh, it'll really help the listeners really appreciate what you guys are doing. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's good to have people like yourself who exactly what you said. I mean, we don't have time to go through all the data and you guys um, are trained to do that and can understand it and present it to physicians and lay people alike, you know, to, to just see what the, the real information is. So just really uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. And um, thank you for coming on the show to talk about this and appreciate everybody listening. And um, we will talk to everyone later. Thanks thank for having you so us. much. Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at Dr. Greg at vibrantlifedc.com.